Time now is 2.06 on July 19th. This is Jordana Green with our Playing Politics podcast, WCCO Radio, and the Star Tribune. Joining me today, as always, is John Rash, a columnist and editorial writer. Alongside him is DJ Tice, commentary editor and columnist. They are both members of the Star Tribune's editorial board. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for having us. My goodness, so much to discuss, but I'd like to start local today, despite our national politics going on. You know, the the, the shooting of Justine DeMond has, has rocked our community and, and the international world, really. We have pressed still in from Australia. How does this shooting affect our local political landscape, given that we're in an election year next year? Well, I think that police community relations was always, already going to be a significant topic of the mayoral election which is just about four months from now, this coming November. It certainly has shot to the top of the agenda, and my senses will stay there. And this also plays against a backdrop of rising concerns over crime as well. So I think that all of the candidates, including Mayor Hodges, who has been quite vocal about this specific shooting, are going to have to contend with this on the campaign trail. And so that's the local impact. And I think you make a compelling point, Jordana, that This also affects the international image of a city that is just on the verge of hosting a Super Bowl and then eventually another Final Four that will be, you know, in the global spotlight. And this certainly does not make the city look good in in any way. So beyond the extraordinary, horrible human tragedy that's here, there's that aspect of it as well. So it is a local story, but as you say, it has global reverberations as well. There certainly is a sense, and it's not mistaken, that the uh, police department is the part of city government that the mayor has most control over. Minneapolis has a weak mayor system of government, uh, meaning that most department heads really don't report to the uh, to the mayor uh, in the way they would uh, report to other chief executives, but the police chief does. And the mayor really has very direct control over that. And, of course, it's, you know, probably the most important function of city government, certainly the one with the most uh, the most at stake and, and the most hazards involved. So it's naturally going to be scrutinized uh, as part of the mayor's performance. And for several years now, there have been a series of incidents that have raised questions, frankly, about uh, Mayor Hodges and uh, her oversight of the the police department, as well as about her relationship with uh, poli- with Chief Harto, uh, which you know was rocky almost from the start when it wasn't sure whether she would retain her, mm-hmm. uh, and they've had a, a series of uh, tense moments uh, ever since. So you've got to kind of wonder where that's headed this summer. I know that Chief Harto has been on a leave that she was it was a vacation leave that she was supposed to take. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Should she have stayed? Well, it's a peculiar situation for her to, you know, be away at a moment like this and not, you know, simply drop whatever she was involved in. It's a little bit mysterious what it was. There was talk of some kind of a personal commitment or something like that. I mean, of course, it could be any number of things, uh, but certainly an awkward uh, situation. Uh, Presumably some know know more than others, but uh, again, just the way it plays politically, it's It's not ideal. Indeed, a challenging aspect of these jobs, however high profile they are, is that at times, unfortunately, you need to set aside whatever personal time you've put away. This happens 
with presidents, with the mayor herself, you know, when something significant comes up, and certainly the chief of police and something that is an international incident at this point, people expect to hear from her and, and expect to have her direct involvement. So I think until she's back on the public scene, you'll continue to hear some questions, if not criticism, about uh, her absence. Let's go uh, national news. Let's talk about health care. The president himself addressed Republican lawmakers, you know, almost berating them, saying, look, you guys, let's get it together. Get it done. And, and women, you know, you've had seven years. You, you've you been promising this. We know the president promised this, of course, during the campaign. But the Republican lawmakers also, and certainly those up for reelection, had been promising this. Uh, what happened today and where does this leave the rest of us when it comes to health care? Well, it appears that President Trump backtracked a bit from yesterday where he said, in effect, we're just going to let the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, fail, and then we'll come back and reconstitute it in a better way. And he, of course, got some significant pushback from that, from Democrats and independents, but even some Republicans. And you're talking about not just a sixth of the U.S. economy overall in terms of health care, but people's lives in terms of their access to health care, and at minimum, the difficulties that many of them would face in terms of a collapsing insurance market. So now he seems to again be pushing Republican senators to come back with repeal and replace. And it looks like they're making one last ditch effort to do this. I think that it'll be quite challenging to come up with a plan that they haven't already constructed or concocted or or thought about at this point to be able to get those recalcitrant senators to be able to back it. And of course, as you and I have spoken about previously, you have the pendulum effect where when you move more moderate, you're going to lose some of the more conservative senators like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Rand Paul. And when you move to try to placate those three as well as some more conservative Republican senators, you're going to lose some of the moderates like Susan Collins. And that's why so many have pointed to this moment and said that the implicit threat should indeed be a promise from Majority Leader McConnell that they work on a bipartisan basis, Mm -hmm. try to rescue the uh, the Affordable Care Act, which clearly needs fixing, and that's something acknowledged by all sides, and try to put together a health care bill, but that in itself would be a difficult process. So I think it has to play out at this point to see if indeed Mitch McConnell has a legislative rabbit left in his hat that he could pull out and get Republican senators to back it. I don't think it's going too far to say that politically it's uh, something of a disaster for the Republicans that they have been unable uh, with complete control of Congress uh, and the presidency to come up with some kind of bill that they at least can agree upon and uh, and ram through. They really are become a little bit of the proverbial dog who caught the car. Uh, The vow to repeal Obamacare has been a enormously successful uh, political pastiche mm-hmm. for the Republicans for the seven or eight years uh, and really has brought them to their strongest electoral position across the country uh, in several generations. Uh, but th- having gotten there, they now are stuck with the vow uh, to repeal and replace it, and it becomes clear that they n- never really have had a plan. Their problem is that the basic outline of Obamacare, if not uh, all the ways it was put together, but the basic structure is the conservative uh, answer to health care reform. And it goes back, as people have said, to the Heritage Foundation uh, several decades ago. Uh, and yet they, you know, for political reasons as much as anything else, 
uh, you know, had to oppose it and turn it into an emblem for everything that people found disagreeable or frustrating in in the Obama years and the uh, and the liberal agenda. So. I hope everybody listening is as appalled that you actually had to say those words. For political reasons, they had to oppose it, even though it was originally Romney Care. It was originally a Republican-based idea. But for political reasons, I called it ego yesterday on the air. But, boy, we citizens are tired of it. And the president said to them today, guys, I have – and he was talking to the women too – I have pen in hand. You never get that. I have pen in hand. Give me something. You know, I was almost – kind of rooting for him today. Yeah. Well, well the trouble is that they, that you then need a plan that, you know, more than 20 percent of the public can, can tolerate. Uh, you know, there's an, a sense of, of course, Trump's, you know, let Obamacare fail is a, a classic juvenile, uh, you know, sour grapes, uh, take my ball and go yeah. home kind of kind of Trumpism. Yet there's a sense in which Taking the status quo with Obamacare with all its problems and allowing the states to individually pursue various kinds of solutions, as Minnesota has Mm -hmm. done, uh, creating its own uh, risk corridor, reinsurance plan, uh, trying to to bail out some of the folks who've been hit with these high premiums and, you know, reimagine. Uh, what this program might look like at the state level, that might be the best they can do. It might be something that they could pass. Uh, and, uh, you know, some states are going to do better than others, but uh, but you can't go into that saying, well, we're going to let the whole system collapse right. and goody-goody. You know, Jordana, DJ brings up some compelling points about the ideological shift in terms of the Affordable Care Act, that it came from a Republican think tank, mm-hmm. was first tested under a Republican governor in Massachusetts, who became the Republican nominee for president, Governor Romney. And you have shifts that are still going on with this. And what the Republicans risk by letting it fail is that the solution doesn't become the preferred Republican solution, but growing support for single payer, which a Pew poll out today suggests that it has its highest level of support ever, of course, driven by Democrats and then to some degree by independents. But if it, if, if the American public gets a sense that the parties cannot come together on this and that health care continues to be a mess and it has a real impact on people's lives, a lot of people are going to look north to Canada or, you know, over across the pond over to what happens in Europe and say, all the other industrialized countries have this and we should too. And finally, I would add, you may also at some point have the business community say, we're competing globally here and all the multinational firms that compete against companies that are located in Europe or in Japan or their competitors worldwide, they don't have to deal with this because their countries have national health care. So you could have continuing shifting ideological grounds that may not work in terms of how President Trump and Senator McConnell and a lot of the Republicans would like it to eventually end up. Well, and not only is John right that it might go that way, but there is has long been a conspiratorial school of thought on the right that this was the Obamacare plan, was to create a system that would be so unworkable for the, the relatively small part of the market that remains private. Because, of course, remember, Obamacare mainly right. increased insurance by expanding Medicaid. That's by, right. By, mm-hmm. by simply making the government piece bigger. And the majority of Americans get health care through their employer. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. And the next next group, by far uh, the largest, is the various government programs, mm-hmm. Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. uh, principally. Uh, and it's a relatively small slice that's still in the individual private market. And that has become, that's where all the problems are. That has become unworkable. There's a school of thought that that's what they expected and wanted to have happen all along because what's the solution then? Single pair, mm. which is what they really wanted. And I actually don't think that even President Obama would have, at least at one point, he wouldn't have disputed that that's what he thought was the best solution. Interesting theory. Let's move on to some of uh, these secret meetings. We have two to discuss today. We are now learning there was an eighth person in the room at the Donald Trump Jr. meeting with the Russian lawyer. And um, then, of course, the sec- uh, we now learned that President Trump had a second meeting with President Putin when he was over in Europe as well. Let's start with the eighth person in the room at Donald Trump Jr. Who was that? Well, it was someone who was brought from those who were seeking this meeting with uh, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, who was President Trump's campaign manager at the time, and Jared Kushner, who now, of course, has a national security clearance as part of President Trump's administration. This was someone who was brought by the Russians who had organized this meeting. He becomes yet another person who I'm sure is of great interest from Special Counsel Robert Mueller and his team of investigators who are looking into this entire story and why he it was important that you know he be in the room as well. Politically, it becomes important because this becomes about the fourth time that the story has changed. And you remember we talked about this last week, Jordana, that the story initially from Donald Trump Jr. Uh, after this was revealed that the meeting took place by the New York Times was that it was about adoption. Right. And of course, while that may have been brought up by some of the Russians present, the whole premise and promise of the meeting, as revealed from emails released by Donald Trump Jr. himself, was to get negative information on Secretary Clinton that Donald Trump Jr.'s father could use in the campaign. And and so, you know, now you have continuing news of people informing, including someone who formerly was involved with the KGB, you know, who had been in this meeting and all this. So, of course, this is going to raise significant political problems, whether there are legal ramifications That remains to be seen, and it remains up to Robert Mueller and and others who are investigating this, including congressional committees. And so this, you know, story continues, and it continues to overshadow some of the initiatives that the president has, including this week is supposed to be Made in America week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it... uh, when you have news of Russian meeting, it's going to <laughs> supersede the whole idea of things that are more exclusively American. But a shout out to Faribault Woolen Mills because we featured them on the show yesterday because <laughs> they were at the White House representing Minnesota. This whole uh, episode um, is, is pretty ridiculous uh, when you come <laughs> right down to it. Uh, you know, the, in addition to the serial clarifications uh, there's just the fundamental fact that for many months, the word we got from uh, the White House and the various individuals uh, was that it was just ridiculous to suggest there had been any pattern of meetings, uh, you know, with, with Russian operatives or uh, Russian officials and that these things simply didn't happen and it was fake news. And now we've come around to the story actually is that there's nothing wrong with them having met with uh, with Russians, and it's just politics, and anybody would have taken this mm-hmm. meeting. Now, either one of those stories is obviously debatable, but either one could be argued. Both are totally impossible. To have shifted from from it didn't happen 
to it's okay anyway. It's a it's the old joke, you know. Well, Your Honor, I did not punch the plaintiff in the face, and besides, he deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it uh, it does become politically untenable, and 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 you're right, and and more than anything, it just clouds the entire agenda, and that was again exacerbated yesterday by the news of the second meeting that Presidents Putin and Trump had mm-hmm. on the sidelines of the G20 summit, and this was not an official meeting. It's the previous well-detailed one had been, and this was a pull, you know, where he pulled President Putin aside by, you know, all accounts, uh, particularly by Ian Bremmer, someone I've interviewed before, the head of the Eurasia Group, a w- very well-known and well-respected political scientist who runs a, a risk consulting firm for geopolitics that several people who were present at the G20 dinner, which was off the record, you know, for the press, saw this happen, thought it was quite odd, including down to the body language. And something very notable is that it was the two presidents and President Putin's interpreter that President Trump didn't even have a Russian interpreter with him. So, you know, it was off the record, and who knows what was discussed or even how it was discussed, because normally, of course, you would have two translators, one from each side, to make sure that what each one is saying is well characterized, important in any bilateral relationship, but particularly between the two biggest, uh, you know, powers in terms of nuclear weapons and, and one, you know, two countries clearly having very frosty, if not Cold War type relationships right now. Before we get into why a translator is so important, uh, two, two translators are, um, how did, describe to me how it happened exactly. Everybody was at the dinner, and then Mr. Trump just kind of grabbed Mr. Putin by the, the, the cuff and said, hey, can we, can we go chat in the corner? Do you have a visual that you can give me on this? The dinner took uh, place over a series of hours, and it's not unusual for a three-plus-hour dinner where you would have a world leader who would you know get up from his or her seat, let's say it's Chancellor Merkel would come over to President Macron of France and they might talk about an issue or just visit on a collegial basis. But President Trump, by the reports from Ian Bremmer, made a clear sign of going over to President Putin, taking him aside. It lasted quite some time. And off the record, several leaders who were there or people who were close to these leaders thought it was highly unusual. And these are people who are savvy veterans of these types of G20 meetings and, you know, the diplomatic protocol behind here. And they thought found it was quite odd. And of course, President Trump is new to all of this. So, you know, he didn't have a template in terms of how this type of a dis- discussion may happen. But, you know, normally you have what's called officially a readout, you know, of these meetings. And if you may remember, it was quite controversial on the official meeting as to actually how much President Trump pressed President Putin regarding the allegations made by every U.S. intelligence agency that the Russians, with clear intent to help Mr. Trump, interfered in the 2016 election. So, you know, here you have a meeting that the White House was not forthcoming about. No one knows what was discussed. And it was the only American president present was the president himself. DJ, you want to chime in? (laughs) I think that I think that covers it pretty well. Okay, then let's move on uh, to, again back to local politics. A district judge ruled against Governor Dayton in his case against the legislators. So I guess they get paid. <laughs> um, so tell us what this means then um, for our legislators and for Dayton. 
Well, uh, this, of course, came out of the end of the legislative session where they uh, they hammered out a deal that Dayton wasn't uh, very happy with in the end, and he wanted to uh, kind of strong-arm the uh, legislature to coming back and renegotiating various points that... Uh, you know, that he was uh, concerned about uh, funding uh, questions and, and some policy as well. Uh, and there had been various shenanigans uh, in ways that they tried to manipulate things in the in the language of uh, the bills with the revenue department funding and so on. It was pretty uh, clever. Yeah, to try to, <laughs> to back each other into, into a corner. And Dayton's final gambit was to line item veto uh, basically all funding for the legislature itself, uh, which they have some reserve funds, but somewhere not long down the road, uh, they would simply run out of money. So this is a, really a novel, unheard of, and rather clever uh, maneuver. But immediately there were questions of whether this can stand constitutionally, where you have, in effect, one branch of government uh, putting the other out of business. Uh, in order to compel them, coerce them uh, into uh, compromising your way or agreeing with uh, with your demands on on a point of dispute. So the legislature took that to court. The district judge now uh, says, indeed, this offends the separation of powers uh, between the, the branches and, and it cannot stand. Dayton has, up until now, uh, vowed that he will appeal to the state Supreme Court if, uh, uh, if he should not prevail, uh, as he has not prevailed now. Uh, no word today as yet as to whether he's going to go through with that or decide, uh, you know, to, uh, to let this stand. It, it means, you know, I think it's highly unlikely that, that uh, the legislature is going to go out of business. That was never a very likely outcome. Uh, and I frankly think it's a little hard to imagine the court's uh, allowing Dayton to uh, prevail on this uh, in the long run. So I would not be surprised to see him decide to, to back off, uh, but we'll see. Uh, he's got his blood up on this, mm-hmm. uh, no question about it. And there's al- always the political question, not just who's going to prevail in court, but how is this playing in the mm-hmm. court of public opinion? And that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit harder to measure. And the political question might get more compelling quite relatively soon because a lot of people are watching to see what House <coughs> Speaker Kurt Dowd does regarding his supposed gubernatorial ambitions. And some people have thought that perhaps he's going to throw his hat into the ring for the 2018 race, as several Republicans and many Democrats already have. And whether this affects him or his timing of that announcement remains to be seen. But that'll be a question that will also be asked. John Rash and DJ Tice. John, as you know, is a columnist and editorial writer, and DJ is a commentary editor and columnist. They are both members of the Star Tribune editorial board, and we do this every week, playing politics. You can find it on the Star Tribune uh, website. You can also find it on the WCCO website. Gentlemen, I thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and we will see you back next Wednesday.